I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at the final two verses of this chapter. We're going to make sure we have the context of this, this portion of the letter. Because Paul, remember, doesn't know we're breaking up his letter into chapters. This just happens to be the end of our chapter 1, and he just keeps going. So we'll get the context here, but I want us to focus our thought really specifically on these two verses as we bend our minds toward what Christ has done for us in preparation for observing the elements of the table. Paul says in verses 30 and 31, And because of him, that's God the Father, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Notice Paul says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. That is because of God the Father. He puts it that way because in the verses leading up to verse 30, Paul speaks of God's call to the sinner for salvation. He says in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in verse 26, if you notice in your text, it says, consider your calling, brothers, Simultaneously, Paul speaks of God's choosing of the believer. In the larger context of our text, starting in verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, your call to salvation. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This call and choosing of God is central to the biblical doctrine of God's election whereby God, because of his love alone in his divine wisdom, not based on any work that we have done, chooses certain people out of all of those who are going to judgment, which is 100% of us, and calls them and saves them by his power. I don't understand everything about election, but I do know one thing. The doctrine of God's election means that there is only one person who can boast about the fact that you and I are saved this morning if you know the Lord. And the person who has the bragging rights about your salvation is not you and is not an evangelist or a pastor or a Bible translator or any human agent. The one person who has bragging rights about our salvation is the triune God so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, Jesus became to us or for us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written in Jeremiah 23 and 24, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our salvation is from God for his glory. In the first years that I began 
taking graduate courses to train for the ministry. This is going back to the, the 90s, the early 90s. Uh, there was a community of believers in the Chicago area led by a team of pastors who were changing the way the evangelical church in America thought about doing church. I'm speaking of Willow Creek Community Church, pastored by one of its founders, Bill Hybels. And this was the early 1990s, and Willow Creek was all the rage. And in one of my theology courses, we studied Bill Hybels' approach to church growth, and we watched his church services online, and we listened to him preach, and we read his material about how to grow a church. And there were a lot of things that we learned from Pastor Bill Hybel, his love for people, his strategy for building relationships with unbelievers for the express purpose of sharing the gospel with them. But we were not encouraged to emulate fully his approach to church growth because what Hybels was attempting to do was to approach the growth of the church in the same way that one would approach the growth of a company by studying cultural and social trends, to discover what would make people attracted to coming into this community. So their church staff went door-to-door in the entire suburban community with a couple of simple questions. First, they asked, do you attend church regularly? And if they said, yes, we do, we, we are regular members of a church, they would say, thank you, have a nice day, and they would go to the next house. But if they said no, and it was apparent that they didn't really have a church family, they would say, why not? Why don't you go to church? And they would answer the question, and they'd write down the answer. Then they set out to change Willow Creek Community Church into the kind of church that would give people what they said they wanted in a church. Now, many people took Bill Hybels to task for such an approach. Uh, They said, you know, we're not supposed to let people decide what the church should be. We should let the Word of God tell us what the church should be. And and basically, many people said that, that Bill Hybels was saying, you tell us what you want in a church and we'll give it to you. But people are very quick to criticize things like this. And I want to be really fair. Bill Hybels and his church staff were not so theologically ignorant and cavalier as to think that they were going to build a church simply because they wanted to satisfy everybody's perceived needs. They knew that the Bible ultimately determines what changes need to be made in a church. However, Within the parameters of what the Bible says, Heibel's reason, there must be some flexibility in how we approach church ministry that would help us reach more people with the gospel and produce a community of New Testament believers. I mean, why not use studies and surveys and cultural measurements to tell us how to tweak things to make it even better? Bill literally had a poster hanging outside his office door with the business philosophy of Peter Drucker, the famous business management guru who invented the concept of management by objectives. And and Drucker's saying was, what is our business? Who is our customer? What does the customer consider value? And it may have seemed like a subtle difference at the time, but Bill approached the church uh, growth Uh, not like a pastor, but like a CEO. And Willow Creek grew several thousand strong. In fact, I think recently I read something like with their different campuses, they have about 18,000 people still uh, in their church. We've got a little ways to go before we we get there. And, and, And soon, everybody wanted to grow his church like Bill Hybels. And there were books written and uh, seminars and journal articles, and the mega church became a very popular 
concept. For example, if you've ever heard of churches being seeker-sensitive or having a seeker service, that's a Willow Creek thing. They came up with that. Well, that was the early 1990s. But as the year 2000 came and went, and the landscape of church ministry was littered with title after title of books and journal articles by church growth experts following Heibel's and churches all over the country had tried to mimic what Willow Creek was doing, the popularity of the megachurch model began to wane as new approaches began to emerge. And in 2007, Bill Hybels made a startling confession. He said, we made a mistake. He said, in essence, what we have been doing all these years and have taught millions of others to do in their churches has produced numbers, but not disciples. He said, we have a lot of people, but we do not have a lot of spiritual people. Imagine being a church member in his church when he said that. One of the other pastoral staff of Willow Creek summarized the situation in this way. He said, we were trying to take out a clean sheet of paper and rethink all of our old assumptions about how to do church and replace the old with new insights that are informed by research, though rooted in Scripture. But after pouring millions of dollars into facility and programs, we found that it wasn't helping people become dedicated followers of the Lord. That was a shocking admission in 2007 by a leading growth expert But at the same time, many churches across the country had already realized the same thing as they had tried to grow their churches using this business model approach. But you know what? That is simply one out of hundreds of examples where churches have tried to strengthen the power of the gospel, taking the message of faith in the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection and marrying this good news to the prevailing wisdom of the time or to what is culturally popular in an attempt to make the gospel attractive to spiritually dead people. Around the same time that Willow Creek was ramping up their new strategy in the early 1990s, John MacArthur wrote a book called Our Sufficiency in Christ in which he had surveyed all of the gimmicks in churches that were trying to uh, do things to make the gospel more powerful, more, more palatable, more attractive to people. He said that many churches seem to believe that you must have an angle to present the gospel to a hostile world. You must be indirect and winsome and simplistic and careful not to turn anyone off. And if, God forbid, someone would be offended or reject the message, it means you have failed. MacArthur said that this has opened the door to some bizarre evangelistic strategies. The church has aped nearly every fad of secular society, heavy metal rock, rap, graffiti, breakdancing, bodybuilding, Brick smashing, jazzercise, interpretive dance, and stand-up comedy have all been added to the evangelical repertoire. Now, we've been, you know, 30 years or more beyond this now, and and you can add a lot of other things probably to the repertoire. But he said, we we see a parade of talk shows, music videos, carnival acts, comedy routines, musical variety shows, and other performances virtually identical to the secular world, except the Christians use the name of Jesus. It is nothing, he says, but hedonism under the guise of religion. And I don't think he's saying, nor would I say, that we are never to use any kind of church event or activity designed to help us connect with unbelievers for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them. But he's warning that our tendency is to overshadow the witness of the gospel with events 
or elements in our ministries which are designed to attract people because subconsciously we don't think the gospel on its own is powerful enough to bring people to Christ. We're afraid if we just, if we just preach the gospel that that's not enough. This is not a new issue. It goes all the way back to the first century church. And it really is the background of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 especially. And there were many in the church in Corinth who had been influenced by the sophists of their day. The sophists were the wisdom bearers. They were these popular speakers who would go around and they would stand in the marketplace, for instance, and they would draw a crowd and they would give these powerful speeches with great wisdom, human wisdom, that explained how to have happiness and fulfillment in life. Corinth was a, was a melting pot of people from all over the empire because it was near a port, actually two different ports, coming in and out where ships and people were coming and flocking in the cities. And, and, and the city was, was, a, was a big city with a lot of people following a lot of wisdom bearers. And that is the reason the Corinthians were divided over spiritual leaders who had taught them the word of God. The way the sophists rolled, uh, you know, they would try to get people listening to them so that they would gain popularity and they would be able to make a living off the people giving them money. And so it was easy uh, to already be in a culture where they would divide between leaders. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. Very early on in the letter, beginning in verse 10, Paul begins to admonish them to stop being divided over leaders, because he says in verse 12, some of them were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos. And the, uh, Apollos was, was a very popular preacher. Or I follow Kephas, that's Peter, who had apparently come through Corinth also, a lot of people think. That's why they're divided with Peter as well. And some, some of them simply said, I follow Christ. They couldn't make up their minds, maybe, is what they said. These divisions do not simply represent a popularity contest. These divisions reflect the fact that the Corinthians wanted to see the gospel proclaimed using the methodology of the sophists. It was an approach that was styled after human wisdom and rhetorical tricks to try to get people to listen and to follow. And some of the Corinthians were upset with Paul for not being more like these sophists. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, they were saying, yeah, Paul writes really heavy letters, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. But Paul tells them at the beginning of this letter that when they heard the gospel and came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was not because he was using sophistry, not because he was using rhetorical trickery. In fact, he summarizes his preaching to them in the opening verses of, of chapter 2. If you look at verse 1, it says in chapter 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It's a reference of the sophists. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear. Can you imagine God saving them when Paul comes and he's trembling while he preaches and he's in fear? And my speech and my message were not implausible or humanly persuasive words of wisdom, human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, God's power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, human wisdom, but in the power of God. And the, the Corinthians saw this happen. When Paul was making tents with Aquila and Priscilla, he would preach the gospel in the synagogues on the weekends, on, 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 on Saturday, on their Sabbath. 
But when uh, Titus and Timothy show up, he goes full-time with the gospel, and he got himself excommunicated from the synagogue because they started really listening to the message, and they decided this is not what we want to hear. So Paul said, I'll show them. I don't know that was his attitude, but, but he did move next door to the synagogue in the house of Tedius Justus. So he was right there next to the synagogue. And you would think that would cause a dumpster fire now going on, that, uh, that they're going to be really mad at him now. But the leader of the synagogue came to faith in Jesus Christ. We can read about this in Acts 18. Who would have thought that would happen? In fact, uh, at the end of the story of, of the Corinthians in Acts 18, the, the Jews try to make a, a play to get Paul out of the city by taking him before Gallio, the new proconsul uh, at the Bema or the Bema seat of judgment. And uh, when, when they made a play, it failed. And instead of beating Paul before the tribunal, they actually beat the Jewish person who led the revolt to bring Paul before Gallio. That man's name was Sosthenes. He was the ruler of the synagogue. And it's probably the same person if you look at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Paul writes this letter from himself by the will of God uh, uh, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. Why would he name a Sosthenes writing to the Corinthians? This is most likely the other ruler of the synagogue who came to faith in Jesus Christ after that event. Only the power of God could do that. And it probably threw the Jews in all kinds of confusion every time their leader diverted and converted and came to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, when I finished preaching the gospel to you and you responded with saving faith, it was not because of my speech or my methodology. It was because of the power of God. You are saved, Paul says, because God chose to save you through his power alone, through the preached word alone. If you look back at verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul tells them, for the word of the cross is foolishness. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? Yeah, this is the power of God. But if we we're going to parallel this statement, what would we say? It is great wisdom. You know, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is great wisdom, persuasive wisdom. No, people don't come to Christ because some are smarter than others. And so they take the gospel and believe it and others don't. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, God says in Isaiah 29, 14, by the way, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God is not going to let human wisdom trump the wisdom of the gospel and his own power. So Paul says in verse 22, for the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But what do we do? We preach Christ crucified, period. And a crucified Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That's true. You see what he says there? The Jews were deeply offended that they had been waiting hundreds and even thousands of years for their glorious Messiah to conquer their enemies. And the Christians claimed that he got crucified on a cross. To begin with, Deuteronomy 21:23 says that anyone who dies hanging is cursed by God. So they were deeply offended that they would say this was their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Greeks or the Gentiles thought the whole idea of a crucified Savior was just silly or gross. I mean, the one you're trusting in for your salvation, let me get this straight, got himself executed, 
by crucifixion. In fact, the oldest example of a drawing that we know of, of Jesus Christ on a cross was not meant to honor Christ, but to mock him. Crudely etched into some plaster at the Palatine Hill in Rome is the drawing of a crucified man with the head of a donkey. And bowing before this figure on the cross is a man, and the words in Greek read, Alexemenos worships his God. And it's believed that this is a slave in the household mocking another slave for being a Christian. This is the oldest example of cruciform ever discovered in archaeology. So a crucified Savior is to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it's just stupid. But to those who are called, Paul says, it doesn't matter if they're Jews, it doesn't matter if they're Greeks, Christ is the power of God. They're called to Christ because of the power of God and because of the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, for what we would call foolishness in the world, is uh, wiser than men, than human wisdom. And the weakness of God, what the world calls weakness, is stronger than men. Our salvation is from God for his glory. It makes no sense to anyone, humanly speaking, how a 2,000-year-old death on a cross in some far-off location in Palestine can have any implication for our eternity. Logically, humanly speaking, that makes no sense. At least not to those who are perishing. But when the power of God is entered into the equation, everything changes and God is glorified. So Paul can declare to God's glory in, in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think that you would all agree based on this scripture that we need to be careful on how we conduct our ministry as a church, how we draw people to hear the gospel, lest we introduce human wisdom into the equation, human ingenuity, lest we depend on human strategy, because when we rely on human strategy and present the gospel and people respond, we tend to think, look what we did to get this result. And we subtly rob God of his glory. And by the way, if I can say for just a moment that the point here is not that anytime we strategize or scheme or rely on human wisdom, no one is ever going to come to faith in Christ. Do you hear what I just said? We do it wrongly. When we do it in a way that Paul is not pointing us, it doesn't mean that no one is going to come to faith in Christ. That's not the point. The point is that no one is going to succeed in bringing faith to Christ through these methods because salvation is only from God and nobody has room to boast. Because sometimes God confounds us. You ready for this? He confounds us when we begin to pride ourselves in being so biblical and so right in our approach to the gospel as if we, we, at least we know we're doing it all right. And then God chooses to save people through a ministry or a method that we've criticized. And when God does that, and he does, it is a reminder to us that God saves people when and where he wants to when people hear the foolishness of the gospel. It doesn't mean we shouldn't strive by God's grace to honor him in our ministries as much as we can, but I've known several people, and you probably do too, who were saved through ministries that they would not participate in today or in churches they would never attend today. 
But in that situation, they heard the message of the cross and God glorified himself and confounded other believers even by applying that message to that person's heart then and there and saving that person against all odds despite all of their protests. God is always going to save people in a way that reminds us that he is the only one who saves, that he is the only one who can boast. I think that we understand this, and I think that we know the danger of relying on ministry tactics to uh, represent the gospel rather than relying on God's power alone. But I'll tell you where I think we all struggle with pride. I think we struggle with it when we secretly believe that we came to Christ and someone else hasn't come to Christ yet because somehow we were easier to save. Or if, you know... We're not maybe that good, but we were smarter. We were wiser. We could see why the gospel makes sense. Somebody else couldn't. So we're making choices in life that more easily led to our accepting of the gospel. And we manifest this attitude of pride in our lives. Whenever we look at another person, we think, oh, that, that person would never come to faith in Christ. Okay, there's a family. Don't even bother with them. Don't even bother with that person. Look, look what drugs has done. Look what their crime has done. Look what their social status has done to them. They're never going to want to get saved. They're too hard to get saved. True fact, we are all too hard to save. Every one of us. None of us is more savable than another. I had a church family in my church in, in Hendersonville. I, I, they were in the church already, and I had heard some of their testimony. They told me the full testimony one day, and I just couldn't believe that they were the same family that they're telling the story about. They said, we were the, we were the, we were the family on the, on the block. Everybody said they would never get saved. In fact, when the husband got saved, the wife was so mad because even though he wasn't drinking anymore and, and, and probably cheating on her and, and playing cards every night and everything that he was doing, she just wanted him back the way he was. She was so upset that he, that he trusted this Jesus and became religious until God got a hold of her heart and saved her too. And it's a family transformed. If you're a child of God this morning, it's not because of anything you are or anything you did. It's only, it's only because of the power of God. And we've got to be convinced of that. It's a rebuke to our pride but it's also encouraging to us who are praying for someone we love to come to Christ. And we wonder as we reproach ourselves, what more could I have done? How do I get through to him or her? Maybe I'm not explaining the gospel clearly enough. At the end of the day, it doesn't have anything to do with you. You are God's messenger. He is using you, but it's by his grace and it's through his power. Paul describes an unbeliever in 2 Corinthians 4.4 as having their minds blinded by the God of this world to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Do you think you're going to be able to do anything about that? No. All we can do is continue to say, be reconciled to God and pray that God will grant repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth so they can escape the snare of the devil who holds them captive to do his will. 1 Timothy 2.26 our salvation is from God for his glory. Now, before we go to the table, there's one other way that Paul brings this point home in our text, and it encourages our hearts as we come to the table. Paul says in verse 30 that it is because of God the Father that we are in Christ Jesus. That is, we were brought into union with him 
so that what is true of Christ is now true of us. Therefore, Jesus, he says, became to us by virtue of our union with Christ, wisdom from God. And and, and Paul says wisdom from God here because in the larger context, remember, he's contrasting the power of God with human wisdom. Jesus became for us or to us wisdom from God. But then Paul gets more specific about this wisdom. He names three spiritual conditions, and all of these spiritual conditions are absolutely impossible for us to, to have, to own, to experience, had it not been for the power of God. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. We could never produce these on our own. Righteousness in the context of salvation refers to our being right with God. It's a forensic idea, as if we're standing in the courtroom of heaven and all of our sins are brought before us and the verdict is is about to be handed down by the judge who is the creator and the holy one. And there is nothing we can do to stop this guilty verdict leading to condemnation into the lake of fire for eternity. That's how dire the situation is. Nothing we can do. So in desperation, we reach out to the only Savior whose death paid for our sins in our place, paid the debt that we owed. And that death, through that death, our sins were imputed to him and he died for them. And his righteousness was imputed to us. Jesus Christ became righteousness to us, for us. So the verdict is handed down from the divine judge, not guilty by reason of his righteousness, not ours. But Jesus also became our sanctification, literally our becoming holy, set apart from the world, from sin, unto God, dedicated, devoted uh, devoted completely to him. There There is a positional sanctification where God regards us as holy because our Savior is holy. But there is also a practical part of the sanctification as well. Namely, we struggle to walk in a holy manner day by day, being obedient to the Scripture and keeping ourselves from sin. And here is where we struggle with a lot of spiritual pride. We're either discouraged because we don't think we see victory over sin like we want to see, or we don't measure up to other believers who seem to be living more holy than we are. Or maybe worse, we think we're doing pretty well in the category of holiness. And then we begin to look down on other people who have a harder time, we think, knowing how to have fellowship with Christ like we do, as someone less holy than ourselves. But guess what Paul tells us? He says, Jesus Christ has become to us not only our righteousness, but also our sanctification. It is by virtue of our union with him that any spiritual growth, any spiritual growth, working in our hearts and coming out in our life is visible. It's not our work. You know, there's nothing that you could have done to save yourself. I think you all agree with that. But do you walk day by day with the equal knowledge that there is neither anything you can actually do to sanctify yourself? Both our righteousness and our sanctification is a gift of God by his power through Christ when we place our faith in him and when we walk with him by faith day by day. Righteousness, when we place our faith in the gospel, Christ died for me. 
And sanctification, when we place our faith daily in the gospel, I died with Christ. And finally, Paul says that Jesus became, through God's power, our redemption. If Paul is thinking of our initial salvation, righteousness, and our ongoing walk with Christ, sanctification, then perhaps he is thinking of the future aspect of our salvation here. So he's got past, present, and future. I don't know that that's true, but it seems to fit really nicely. The fact that one day we will be finally redeemed and rescued, not only from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin as we unite with our Lord forever. That is only something God can do. Only he can redeem us at last. And he does so by placing us in Jesus Christ. Now, as we observe the elements of the table this morning, as we identify with the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, Let's rejoice this morning that our salvation is from God, from His power, for His glory. There's a reason that the earliest term the church used to refer to the table is the word Eucharistia or the Eucharist. That is not a term invented by the Roman Catholic Church. That term was used by the early church. You know what it means? It means thanksgiving. Because when we come to the table, it is with gratitude that we identify ourselves with Christ. We come boasting, but our boast is in the Lord. It's thanking Him for what He has done. This morning, if you are a true believer in Christ, I want to invite you to partake of the bread and the cup as they are passed. If you this morning are unsure of your salvation whether you're here, you're in the, the overflow room, maybe you're watching us online. We ask you to refrain from participating in a supper where we're declaring our union with Jesus Christ. However, I would ask that you today call upon God to be merciful to you and save you. You think you have time to contemplate God's invitation to come to Christ and be saved. But you have no idea how desperate your situation actually is. And I mean this. If you are unsure that you know the Lord, please say something to me or one of your leaders or group leader here at Gateway. We would love for nothing more than to go into a side room somewhere and talk about the Scripture and try to show you what God has done to save you. And as we bow for silent prayer in a few moments, like we always do before we come to the table, let's humbly thank God for his power in saving us, but let's also cry out to God for those that we know, maybe those who are here in this building right now, we don't know, that God would be merciful and save them by his power to unite them with us around this table. God can do that. Do you believe that? God can do that by his power. He saved you. You were unsavable. This promise is so wonderful for us. We know that people are perishing and we know that they are being saved. When we present the gospel to them, we're going to find out who is who. And that's a promise from God. There's always fruit in our witness. So let's trust in God and let's rejoice in what he has done to save us. I'm going to ask you to bow.